Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase. I've got a couple degrees in theology, and I'm working on another in philosophy of religion. And throughout my studies, I had some really awesome conversations with brilliant people. But unfortunately, I have not recorded those. So they just live up here or they're gone forever. So the goal of this podcast then is to continue these conversations, have them recorded, and then share them with you so that you get to learn as I learn. So uh, I will be speaking with uh, experts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. And uh, I get to learn amazing stuff, and you get to too. So come think with me. Today's episode is going to be about divine simplicity and divine complexity. Um, some of the criteria, some, we're going to be talking about like why would anyone hold to simplicity? Why would anyone uh, reject simplicity? All sorts of simplicity, uh, divine simplicity. And if you don't know what that means, then stay tuned and you'll know by the end of this episode. Before we jump in, though, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon, all my patrons. You guys are making this happen. Uh, I've been able to buy a new microphone, new headphones, new camera. Like, everything's been awesome. So I really appreciate you guys doing that. As I've said before, I would love to make this a full-time gig. I've got some new equipment to travel now, so I can go do in-person ones. Haven't done that yet, but Lord willing, that'll happen soon. So if you have uh, appreciated these podcast episodes, if you've uh, benefited at all, please consider becoming a Patreon patron. You can find the link in the description. And uh, there's all sorts of really fun, like stickers and mugs and uh, different things if you join it at different levels over on Patreon. Uh, you can also join the conversation that's being had by various uh, Parker's Pensies uh, listeners, as well as guests over on Facebook. You can find our group Parker's Pensies Ponsiers. Um I pronounced them wrong, but it's fine. Uh, go find that. And um, as long as you don't spam the group too hard, I'll let you in and we can have uh, fun conversations. We can continue to talk about simplicity and Trinity and all sorts of stuff over on Facebook. Uh, but without uh, without further ado, let's get to the topic today. Today I have with me Dr. Matthew Badorf. And um, it's crazy. This guy listens to the podcast. So that's pretty fun too. Um, but we're going to be talking about a couple of his papers arguing against divine simplicity. We're going to define our terms and then... Uh, get into it. So let's just jump right in. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, this has been uh, a long time coming, and I've been meaning to do this for a while. Um, so I'm really excited to get into your work. Um, a couple of my own professors, like Paul Gould, have said, uh, have talked about your papers um, and, and said how great they are. So I was like, man, we got to get that. We got to get him on the podcast to talk about this. Um, how did you first get into thinking about divine simplicity? Uh, well, I was an undergraduate philosophy major at the excellent Co uh, Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where all of your listeners should send their children. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, you know, it was a great place. It, it was a wonderfully formative intellectual experience, uh, but it's a, a reformed school in the PCA. And, um, you know, like a lot of sort of Protestants in that vein, there was uh, respect for the tradition uh, respect for creeds, um, but a, a real emphasis on the Bible. Uh, and that was more or less the kind of attitude that I had sort of coming into it. Uh, and I remember as an, as a sophomore 
everybody there had to take two, uh, in addition to two, two classes on the Bible, you had to take two Christian doctrine classes. And so I was looking through, I think it was Millard Erickson's textbook for that class, uh, a shorter condensed version of the textbook that, uh, that I think is used for seminaries. And looking at the section on divine attributes for class, you know, and, and coming to this, you know, little subheading, divine simplicity. And it, it only got like a paragraph. Um, and it was deeply confusing um, because basically it was now, I think I suspect it was probably a kind of a very watered down version of the view. But Erickson still said, no, this is a very important thing that's been been traditionally taught, uh, you know, by all the churches that God is uh, is simple. He's not uh, complex like us. His attributes are in some sense one. And here I was thinking like, what on earth is this? And like, and how on earth does he get it from the Bible, man? Yeah. Um, and then of course, Erickson just goes on and talked about other stuff. Um, so like that was the, that was the seed. Um, but it didn't really grow until I got into graduate school and was just kind of like, you know, getting a little bit interested in medieval philosophy. I think I, I found Ed Fazer's blog. Yeah. Uh, and he, of course, he's a big into divine simplicity in a very like strong Thomistic kind of sense. Uh, and I was like, oh, okay, now I'm starting to kind of see how these pieces come together, why people cared about this stuff. Um, but I think uh, I think you mentioned before we started recording that you were you're sort of attracted to divine simplicity, but you know you're not sure what to think about it. I was sort of the opposite. I was like, this doesn't seem right. <laughs> I got to figure out like I got to figure out whether the, what's wrong with this. That was when my you know headstrong twenties. Now that I'm a you know, mature, arrived, 34-year-old, okay. I, uh, I have a much more sort of like, uh, well, who knows? This stuff's really hard. Uh, some days I think divine simplicity is true. Some days I think that it's false. Some days I'm just like, ah, I don't know. Um, uh, rereading my old stuff <laughs> for this uh, this episode made me, push me a little bit further away from the divine simplicity camp because I was like, yeah, younger Matthew had some nice arguments. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, yeah, but anyway, like that kind of got me into it, and, and so since then, it's just been a great journey of uh, of reading what a lot of people smarter than me have had to say about it. Yeah, historically, but especially you know nowadays, I mostly read contemporary folks. I I try to read some historical sources, but leave most of the history to the proper historians. Um, yeah, so that's that's why I love it. Well, uh, Matthew, you mentioned um, you went to a, a PCA school. Are you a Presbyterian yourself? Do you find yourself in a in a particular denomination, or, or where are you at? Uh, no, my wife and I have been attending uh, an Anglican church, uh, and before that, we were at a Charismatic Episcopal church, which is a, a sort of well, that they're not uh, they're not associated with the Episcopal Church. It's the splinter off group of the Brazilian Catholic Church, and it's kind of a long story. No, gotcha. so I haven't been attending a Presbyterian church since I was in college. Okay, okay, gotcha. But I, I, I still try to like wrap it, even when I think they're wrong. I think the Presbyterianism is a the Reformed tradition is a great philosophical tradition. Uh, yeah. that people shouldn't just sort of reject because they don't like compatibilism or something. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's great to hear, man. Well, so that's that's part of the reason why I want to I want to affirm simplicity if I can, right? Cuz I'm 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 trying to find myself in in the reformed camp of some sorts, uh depending on what you mean by that. Like in some ways Jacob Arminius is was more reformed than I am, and so I, there's all this nitpicking and hair splitting. Um so with that in mind, Len, let's let's get in um, to simplicity. For for those who haven't listened to any other uh, episodes, haven't heard of uh, simplicity, or or only read a little bit from uh, Erickson, what what are some reasons that someone would uh, affirm divine simplicity other than me wanting to be a good reform boy? 
Yeah. I mean, it's the tricky thing is, you know, just it's one of those philosophical ideas where just describing it is hard to do. Right. And every time some like non-philosopher friend or family member asks me about my research and, and I say, well, it's about divine simplicity, I feel like there's this big hump to get over. Um, but basically, the idea is that God doesn't have any kind of complexity. Hmm. And you could kind of take this in, in weaker or stronger senses. Like I mentioned before, I, I don't remember, but Erickson is probably in a weaker sense. Like pretty much everybody thinks God doesn't have physical parts. So like, you know, God doesn't have a body. So God's not going to have like a north side and a south side, yeah. you know, the way that we yeah. do. Um, but a lot of philosophers have thought that there are metaphysical parts. Like, you know, maybe we're souls. And, uh, you know, despite the fact that your soul isn't physical, uh, it's composed of various sorts of attitudes and loves and capacities and so forth. Um, so if you take that kind of approach, uh, then divine simplicity, you know, it's sort of the, the more serious you are about divine simplicity, the more parts you're going to rule out for God. Yeah. So like the, the strongest version, which has gotten the most attention recently, and which is sort of like, uh, you know, the, the historical avatar is Thomas Aquinas, although I, I think a lot more people than him liked it or endorsed it, uh, would basically say that, there is absolutely no sort of composition in God whatsoever. God doesn't have any sort of parts. He doesn't have, he doesn't have tropes. He doesn't have properties. He doesn't have real relations. Just like whatever sort of metaphysical parts you think you need to describe anything else, you don't need it for God. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's that's helpful. Um, and this, your paper is is super interesting because um, a lot of the reasons that people will want to affirm simplicity, or the reasons they give for affirming simplicity have to do with aseity and, and sovereignty. And so in your paper, uh, Divine Simplicity, Aseity and Sovereignty, you argue that complexity actually uh, doesn't undermine simplicity or sovereignty, and therefore those two can't be used to you know, bolster divine uh, simplicity. So let's, let's define those terms for people, and then we can, we can continue diving in deeper and deeper. Uh, what is divine sovereignty and uh, aseity? And then I guess what's complexity as well? Yeah, well, so I think of complexity here is just sort of the opposite of, of simplicity in the sense that we were just talking about. So like when I talk about a complex God, I mean a God that has some metaphysical parts. Yeah. I don't necessarily mean complexity or simplicity in the way that people talk about it for something like theory consideration. Like people say, oh, you know, Occam's razor, you should go with a simpler theory. Maybe there's some connection between that kind of complexity and this one. Um, but huh. uh, I'm not sure that there is. Um, yeah. As for aseity and sovereignty, well, in the paper, I kind of divvy, I split them up. Uh, I started talking about aseity first and then sovereignty. Um, but aseity basically is uh, coming from the Latin ase, which I don't speak Latin, which has led to some awkward moments when I've been in medieval philosophy conferences. <laughs> uh, you know, and all the handouts are just in Latin, and I'm just kind of looking at the handouts. Amazing. And just trying to pretend to be following along with everybody else. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, aseity, just from the Latin ase, meaning basically from oneself. And it basically just means not being dependent upon anything else. So the idea of God's aseity is that God isn't sort of reliant upon anything outside of God. You know, God doesn't need anything else to exist. Uh, and of course, like with most attributes, there are different ways of understanding this. But for the purposes of the paper, I tried to adopt a pretty seriously strong version of aseity, where God doesn't rely on anything else sort of in any respect, not even to sort of, uh, not only for God's existence, but also for God's attributes or character. So it's yeah. not like... Uh, it's not like God is made happier, you know, by Parker's podcast or something like yeah. that, because like that would be like, you know, God relying on something else. Um, I don't know how much, you know, somebody who rejects divine simplicity can go with like a super strong version of aseity, but I was trying to get as much as I could yeah. uh, for the purposes of this paper. 
Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. So then um, how about how about sovereignty and the purpose of our conversation here? Yeah. So in a way, you could think of sovereignty as sort of the other side of the aseity coin. You know, aseity says God doesn't isn't dependent upon anything else. And, and sovereignty talks about how everything else is in some way dependent upon God. But dependent mm-hmm. upon God it, in a sense where God God rules over it. And, you know, exactly what that comes out to is like famously difficult to work out for theology. Like, you know, we're mentioning reformed, you know, folks earlier and disputes about meticulous providence and all that kind of thing. But basically the broad notion is just God's in charge and God has control over everything or as close to everything as sort of we can manage when giving due account to, you know, free will or, or something like that. Yeah. Okay. That's awesome. Um, that, yeah, that's super helpful. Uh, we're going to get into both of those. We'll start with uh, uh, Asadi first, but then this this was um, I, I think this was new language for me. Maybe not, but uh, you, you talk about um, divine complexity tropes, uh, DCT, and uh, I think I've heard it cashed out in different ways from guys like Paul Gould. Um, but can you can you help us like what work is what what are divine tropes and then. Uh, I guess we can get into the work that it's doing when we, when we consider Asadian sovereignty. Yeah. Well, I'm smiling as you say this because I was thinking, you know, if I were to have written the paper now, I probably wouldn't have used the word tropes. I probably would have just called them modes um, oh, because yeah. modes are sort of the, the more historically kind of standard term. Yeah. And I think tropes, you did. You put that in a, in a footnote or something, I think. Yeah. It, it kind of, I discovered this like late enough, you know, I was writing this in graduate school and I kind of like got converted into mode talk late enough in the nice. paper writing process that I decided not to go through and redo the whole thing. Okay. Uh, but yeah. Um, so like tropes nowadays, like it's associated with all sorts of modern views, like that only tropes exist or right. uh, such like that. Um, and so I don't want to give people that impression for me. Tropes are basically particular properties. So like, you know, you've got a green shirt. Greenness might be some universal, you know, people debate whether universals exist, but like supposing they do, there's this universal green. But if you believe in a particular property, you also think that like the greenness of your shirt is is something that that's had by the shirt. Right. Um, and so even if there's another shirt with the exact same shade, it's they're each going to have their own trope or their own mode. I, for this conversation, I'm probably just going to use both both words. Sure. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a question that you you brought up in your paper. Um, do we need different tropes for each predicate of God then? So, um, yeah. Can you explain what why that would, that might be confusing? Because you have like tons and tons of tropes then maybe, or, or do they all collapse yeah. into one and you get simplicity again? Yeah, I mean, in a way, there's no difficulty about number. Like if God has multiple uh, properties or attributes or, you know, tropes that have some kind of distinct existence. Like if he has two, then why not infinity? Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, there's a great line from some medieval philosopher. I think this, I read this in Pasnell's uh, fabulous book, metaphysical themes. Um, but uh, he finds some medieval philosopher who I think is like writing to the King or something, trying to explain why the King should take the nominalist side over the realist side. Mm-hmm. And, and he tries to explain the philosophical dispute to this politician, right. By saying like realists believe that for every name, there's a corresponding thing. Um, and that's, that's not something I want to say. I don't think that most realists want to say that either. Then you'd have to have like, you know, like Quine says somewhere, like, you know, for the sake of meaning that there are sakes and, uh, <laughs> and that just seems like weird. So I don't want to say that. So I don't take any view on how many sort of tropes God might have. Um, uh, But that seems like a great thing for somebody else to write a paper about. Uh, But I just want to say um, there's 
there are some. And, yeah. and that it seems like, you know, something like God's being the moral ruler of the universe or being just or something seems like it's probably the, made true by a different trope than something like God's being powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, maybe you could. I know I know that it, if once you have one trope or once you have one amount, one other thing in God, then you have complexity. But it does seem like, oh, let's not do too much complexity. Let's not, <laughs> let's not get carried away in our complexity here. But, yeah, it's. Well, no, I, I think there's something in what you say. And this actually kind of gets at the, the other paper that, uh, you know, Lord willing, we might end up talking about if yeah. we have time, which is the paper on, on divine beauty. Because I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I wonder if part of what's going on is that you want God to be this, like, sort of transcendently excellent, wonderful, beautiful being and like, you don't want to, it's not beautiful to just have like a whole bunch of sort of like dangly sort of, you know, odds and ends kind of hanging out because like we need them to be there, but, the, but they're not really like unified or something like that. Yeah. So our background I, I grabbed, I think I just Googled uh mirrorological simple and I got that. That's not a mirrorological simple, but it's like a picture of mirrorology. And that's kind of what the, um, oh, that's the background to the video. Yeah. 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 Um, so those watching on YouTube can see this. If you're not, then sorry, you're out of luck. Uh, but yeah, it's like this complex, you know, weird thing. And I don't want to think of God as, and that's what someone who, a proponent of divine simplicity might say, like, oh, look, he has this big complex thing. And that's not really the picture of God that we get. We get him as a, as a person or, or three persons in divine unity. Um, so yeah, I, I hear that. But um, okay, let's let's get in and we can see what, what, what the tropes are, are doing uh, for us. Um, sure. So I think let's start with why would someone think that complexity would diminish God's aseity? Um, so basically, I, I think the core worry is you might just think if God is complex, then God can't be ase. You know, God doesn't have aseity if he's complex. Um, but in the paper, I also kind of consider this related worry. Um, traditionally, people who are excited about aseity, which you know, includes most theologians, not just Christian, but Jewish and Muslim too, um, want to say that only God has aseity. Yeah. You know, it, it would kind of offend God's uniqueness to have, you know, God and also the number series, you know, all have a saity. Um, and so it would be problematic if it turns out that God's parts were also say. So, like, I consider both of those words, you know, God's not a say or God has to share a saity with God's parts. Yeah. Yeah. At the sharing God sharing a saity with his parts doesn't I never got that one being such a big deal because it's like, well, they still it's still God. It's not like they're outside. The, the, I think the concern for me is usually when you read like PVI or someone and they're like, um, yeah, the, the platonic realm is, is also co-eternal with God and he didn't create it. And he has no, like, he just has to deal with that. That one seems to get me uh, with his aseity and stuff like that. Cause then if he has to appropriate properties, I don't even know how to make sense of that. But if, if he's dependent on his properties and his properties are exemplifications or, or somehow, dependent or related to this abstract realm, then that might mess with uh, divine city. Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah. If he's got to go like borrow them from the platonic heaven, yeah. just to be who he is, that seems like a real problem. And that, yeah. that does seem a lot worse than just sort of sharing, you know, sharing some of his, you know, essayetic glory <laughs> with, yeah. with some, with something that's part of him. No, I, I agree. Yeah. And I'm not totally sure that it's a bad thing if the, the parts turn out to be assay, but the sort of people who are really keen to protect divine simplicity typically are. Yeah. And I think there's something to the worry. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So um, you quote from Vincent Spade and you say any complex thing has an efficient cause. And so then there's like this, this worry that God has a cause. Uh, is, is that the worry or can you, can you flesh that out for us? Yeah, actually, you mentioned Vincent Spade, and that makes me want to go off topic slightly because I believe Vincent Spade is uh, the guy who has the course in the box, um, which is this amazing thing. And I I imagine that a lot of your uh, listeners are interested in kind of, they're the graduate students interested in like where they can find good stuff or they're independently researching this stuff. Um, look at the, the medieval philosophy course in a box. If you basically want the equivalent of a, uh, uh, a sort of a, a single, like, unwieldy PDF document that gives you a whole graduate <laughs> level course in medieval philosophy, it's amazing. Uh, it's really good. Anyway, uh, yeah, so, so Vincent Spade, um, who knows, of course, like way more about medieval philosophy than I ever will, um, he thinks that the medievals tended to assume uh, what I call CIC in the paper, basically that complexity implies causation. So if you've got anything that's complex, anything that's not simple, then it's got an efficient cause. And the thinking seems to be um, you needed to have somebody to put the parts together. Like imagine things that are complex as being sort of like, you know, Lego structures made out of little Lego bricks. The default state is for the bricks to be separated. You need to have some kind of thing putting them together. That's the efficient cause. That's, you know, that's the role that efficient causes play in an Aristotelian framework is the outside force that like assembles something. Yeah. So, so that's the first worry. Okay. Um, yeah. What, what do you, what do you make of that worry? Is it, is it like super unreasonable to just be like, well, no, like the, just God is self-existent and he's got these, the Lego blocks are already there. Cause there has to be. Uh, yeah. I, it was a hard, hard part of the paper to write because it's sometimes hard in philosophy when you just sort of seem to have clashing intuitions. Like, yeah. like I think like, no, no, God, God's a say and necessary. So of course, like he doesn't have to have anything put him together. Uh, but I, I tried to think of like, what can I say to kind of help, help people who just have different intuitions from me? Yeah. Um, so one thing I say is, look, um, the complexity implies causation seems most intuitive for ordinary physical objects, you know, where it seems like we see them get put together and fall apart all the time. Uh, and it makes sense for us to ask why they're one way or the other. I think it's less clear for things like modes, which are sort of these weird metaphysical parts that are sort of like not necessarily, you know, like physically located that are just like a, a part of a substance. So mm-hmm. I think, okay, when we kind of bear in mind that metaphysical parts are like very different from physical parts, then, then maybe that takes away some of the intuitive pull of like of complexity implies causation. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Modes, modes talk is cool. It's it's something that's new to me, so I'm still like, I'm, I'm still hazy on it. But um, in certain conceptions of like uh, uh, substance dualism, um, there's not there's not actually two substances, but the the body is a mode of the of the soul. So there's like the substance plus the properties um, exemplified and an exemplification relation. I think um, does uh, that does that make sense of, of a mode? A mode is like a the substance plus properties plus a relate exemplification relation. Um, yeah, I think I try to be really neutral on some of these metaphysical questions about how it all fits together. Okay, but modes are going to be in some way attached to a substance, okay. um, and they re- they depend upon that substance to exist. That's a, yeah. like part of part of their essence of that mode is that it's attached to that substance. Yeah, um, which is fun for the medievals because it sort of. Rex, you know, Mary Havoc, sort of with, with theories about the Eucharist, but 
that's a, that's a whole other problem. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's uh, how it gets attached to the substance is a really tricky metaphysical question. Like okay. not not the causal history um, that might also be a tricky question, but like sure. what it is for a substance to have a mode. Is yeah. there some kind of exemplification relation there? I seem to recall some that there being perhaps some difference between an exemplification relation versus an inherence relation, but like, but please I, don't I've heard that too. No, I've heard that too. And, and people will say that, and it's, they say it's like a debate between the Aristotelians and the Platonists and like the, I think the Platonists go for exemplification and Aristotelians say instantiation or something like that. And I'm still, dude, it's, it's wild. Oh, no, I'm right there with you. One thing I guess like when I think about it in terms of Platonists versus Aristotelians, I think, oh, well, you know, the Platonists say that the property's out there and the Aristotelians say it's part of the substance. But then if I ask myself, well, okay, but what, just what, what's the difference there? Like, what does it mean to be part of a substance versus not? I think it gets hard to spell out really carefully. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, if you, if you think that every, all properties are outside of the substances that they're in, then a lot of the stuff that we're talking about here is not going to make any sense to you. Yeah. 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 That's good. Um, Okay, so uh, there, you you bring up this thing PDK, and for me that's Philip K. Dick. But so it, it stuck out to me. But um, it's not. <laughs> that's it's that's not a what, good thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not what you're referring to here. So power knowledge difference. Um, doing some work for you here. Can you explain what that is, and then how we can use it? Yeah. So the thought here is that. Um, this is just like an intuition that I just sort of like set up as, as kind of a, a motivation for rejecting divine simplicity, but more, more specifically here in the argument as, as just a consideration to maybe loosen the grip of complexity implies causation on people where I want to say, look, even if it turns out that, that, you know, complexity implies causation is plausible. It's not the only plausible thing out there. And sometimes, you know, we just different plausible things turn out to be inconsistent with each other and we have to pick one. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I try to, you know, reduce the plausibility of complexity implies causation by saying, oh, it's not like a physical object. And, and by saying, like, uh, there, there can still be some explanation for why the parts are there. It just won't be an outside causal explanation because CIC says it's got to be somebody outside of putting it together. But right. as we'll get to in a minute, that's not the only kind of explanation that exists in the world. So, like, maybe there's some other explanation. But if you're still kind of attracted to CIC, I just say, look, it seems like what makes – it true that a being is powerful is not also what makes it true that a being is knowledgeable. Yeah. So like if we're talking about like truth makers for sentences or propositions or something like that, it strikes me as intuitive that, that knowledge and power are rather different. I don't really get too much into why, you know, this is just my bare intuition, yeah. but like, I think you could probably try to come up with an argument. I was thinking about this earlier this week and I thought there might be something a bit like a direction of fit difference between knowledge and causal power. It's like people talk about direction of fit for uh, desires and beliefs, right? Like for a belief to be apt is for it to, to match up with the world. It's got to like conform to the world for a desire to sort of be successful. The world conforms to the desire. Yeah. And so maybe there's something a bit like that. It seems like knowledge sort of reflects the world. It's, it's made apt by like corresponding to the way that things actually are. Whereas mm -hmm. causal power is sort of apt when it like succeeds in changing the ways that things actually are. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, you could say things like that to just kind of like warm people up to the idea like, no, we really want some metaphysical difference between power and knowledge. And then probably also between other attributes like moral ones and so forth. Yeah, that's uh, really good. Yeah, it's really helpful. I, I was I was um, I'm struck by the uh, CIC, like it doesn't have to be something outside itself. And then I, I uh, just recently 
heard about, learned, read. I can't remember how I, it came into my brain or my mind, but Tom Morris talks about uh, like a, a 3D printer. And so, um, so God is like creating his own attributes uh, eternally. And it's, I really like Tom Morris, but this idea is bonkers to me. But it's like yeah, a way. Yeah, say. It seems weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he, and he acknowledges it. He's like, yeah, of course yeah, yeah. this is weird. But we're talking about God and God's nature. So that, that's one. You're going to say something weird somewhere. Exactly. Yeah, you got to bite some bullets. Um, or you don't say anything and you just go, it's mystery. But yeah, that's fine. We all got to go with mystery. Can we go a little bit further? And so that's just one way of, of an internal view that, that God is creating his own nature. I don't I don't think that's right. But um Tom Morris is very smart. And so, um, yeah, if, if for the listeners, go check that out. And uh, maybe you'll like that one, 3D printing in, himself. In a way, I think the view that I try to sketch out next is not so different from that. I just don't say it's God causing. Mm. It's just that there's a non-causal kind of dependence going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but some people don't think that there's like really a difference between causal and non-causal kinds of dependence. And like, I don't know how to, I don't know what the right taxonomy for all these things is. But Yeah, well, I think about when it comes to like emanation like is emanation is that is that causal yeah. you think Do, if something emanates from someone it's like there's not it's not intentionally causal causal i yeah. guess there's yeah, not. i guess that sounds causal uh, okay i guess i usually think about emanations as being like necessary not a product of will but still causal yeah so i guess i don't, I don't want to say that these these modes emanate okay uh, i just want to say that they're grounded in god yeah i'm trying to think because I, I I haven't thought a ton about it, but I've, I've it's been in my checklist. Like, do you think about causal relations and and uh, the grounding relation, whether it's causal or not. So, um, let's just let's like is you, you're saying that God is um, this does not imply that God is causally bound. Is that right? Um, so I think so. I guess I, not, I don't think I use the words causally bound, and I'm wondering what they mean. Oh, well, I think I grabbed it from you. So maybe I oh, maybe, well, maybe I, I did. Maybe I messed yeah. it up. Should have uh, asked earlier, Matthew, from, from five years ago. That's right. Um, well, so I think uh, on a sub note, so I, I, I took some notes from your thing. Um, there's something more fundamental. Is there something more fundamental, God, or or equally fundamental? Um, right. God's parts. And so that, I think that's the question. Um, I'm trying to think through why I wrote that. Yeah, down. so is God like constrained by his parts? I guess that's yeah. kind of a sovereignty question, but also yeah. like is God is God made up by his parts such that even if there's no like exterior cause, so we're dropping the CIC thing, yeah. we're just going to go talk about like non-causal dependence. Uh, is there, I think that this is something that a lot of people will still find very problematic and it might be the more serious kind of objection. Um, it seems like if God has parts, then God depends upon God's parts. Yes. You know, God needs his, his power trope to be powerful, right? And God yeah. like needs his, his justice trope to be just. And then it seems like God doesn't, isn't really totally self-sufficient. Even if, even if it's not as bad to say that as it would be to say that God is like getting these from like the platonic heaven. Yeah. It's still, it's still bad to say that God has this kind of, think about it as like, you know, this little engine sort of inside of God providing him with like the stuff that he needs to be powerful and just and so forth. And that, that's not what we want to say. Yeah. Um, I, man, there's so many rabbit trails, uh, just really quick. So I want to go back to the engine thing, but, um, what about someone, what about the, the like rabid Platonist, uh, realist who's like these, how does God have, uh, Alvin Plantinga. 
is he? I was thinking like PVI, but um, oh, yeah, I, I just I think of all of those the, those folks as being sort of very platonic, and that's why yeah. they yeah they, they're not really involved in this fight because this is a fight amongst constituent ontologies. Yeah, well, so it, although I guess planting was involved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm planting a yeah. Um, if someone said like, well, how come God's God's tropes get to be tropes and not universals? Uh, how, how, what makes God's power so, you know, sui generis that it doesn't inhabit the Platonic realm where maybe I'm assuming Platonism here, but, um, yeah. Like why, why do we need the Platonic realm at all? Maybe we just have tropes. God has some, you've got some, uh, you know, God's related to his tropes, maybe a bit differently than you are, but I, I don't know. It's been yeah, a long yeah. time since I really thought yeah. about like Platonism versus nominalism stuff about universals. Okay. Okay, yeah, I'm super deep into that right now because I'm writing a paper on God's thoughts. And so it's just oh, like nice. super deep. Um, okay, hey, so we, this is a little yeah. rabbit trail too, but uh, have yeah. you read uh, Michelle Ponchuk on Divine Ideas? I don't think so. She what? published a paper on it like, I don't know, eight years ago or something. Um, P-A-N-C-H-U-K, I think. Uh, really good stuff. Dude, I'll check that out. Thank you. That's huge. Yeah, I'm trying to read like all of it. So I guess I'm not as deep as I thought. There's still more every day and more pops up. Um, okay, so um, what do you make of – we going back to the machine, uh, the little engine that could inside of God. Um, is that the case? And if so, is that a problem? Yeah, I don't think it's the case. I think I used to not be so worried about it. But sort of in the course of writing the paper, I sort of – came to appreciate maybe through the help of, of great folks like Caleb Coho. Um, mm-hmm. I hope I, I hope I pronounce your last name, right? Uh, Caleb, um, but sort of, uh, I got this quote here somewhere. Um, that kind of illustrates, I think the, the kind of, the kind of thought that I used to think was okay, but now I'm worried about. So Hughes in his book on Aquinas says, you know, this, this kind of dependence is fine. Like to have the sort of like little engines, you know, inside God sort of providing God with, uh, you know, with these, uh, these attributes in a way. Uh, I don't want to, I don't know if, if this is exactly how Hughes would say it, but, but what he says is, you know, this just means that there's some constituent of God whereby God is a certain way. And, and I'm not totally sure what Hughes meant by that, but I worry about that kind of language because it seems like the whereby really does make God dependent yeah. on the trope. And like, that's, that's just not a saity, or at least not the strong kind of a saity that I, I, I want to defend here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, these tropes, the tropes aren't, uh, they're not, they're dissimilar to universals in that they're not multiply realizable or multiply uh, instantiable or exemplifiable. Um, it, is that right? Like these, these are divine tropes. Uh, yeah, well, I think probably any tropes oh, yeah, yeah. aren't, but but especially not these. Yeah. If, if you think that they are like incommunicable attributes, some of them. Yeah. So I, I, I say weird stuff like that because I, I wanted, I like the trope stuff for God. Um, maybe it's special pleading, but I don't like tropes other places. I do like <laughs> universals and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Interesting. And so I, so I, I Paul, this is Paul Gould that does something like this in um, trying to resolve the bootstrapping concern when it comes to God and his own nature. Um, and he says something like, I should be able to represent him better than I am right now, but something like God's attributes um, or parts, like 
Yeah, God's properties are Aristotelian and others are Platonic. And so it is mm. kind of like sui generis, like uh-huh. I don't I don't want to say it's special pleading, but it's like yeah, there's a there's a clear distinction between God's uh, properties and the properties of everyone else. And so Yeah. Well, it's not special pleading if you've got some good reason for it, I think, right? And, and like I'm not sure what the reason would be, but I'm I think this is an interesting idea, like maybe Maybe, so metaphysically speaking, we're going to start with God, and then God grounds God's tropes. And then in some way, God's tropes ground universals that sort of correspond to them. So, like, God has a power trope. And then all universals that have anything to do with power, you know, whether it's a lot of power, little power, you know, infinite power, you know, they're all in some way dependent upon God's power trope. And then we have properties because we participate in the universal. And like this could end up looking kind of nicely neoplatonic if you're into the idea that like maybe our all our properties are kind of like reflections or emanations or you know communions with the divine in some sense, right? Dude, this is awesome, man. You get it. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Okay. Um, that's good. That's good. I really like that. That might be what Paul's saying anyways. Um, but I, I think that is actually what he's saying. Yeah. Um, okay, so so we talked a little bit about aseity, and I don't know. Do you feel like that's that's tied up with a bow, nice and neat? Anything else to say about it? Uh, like, no, well, let me let me just say so. Like the, the problem there is we don't want to say that the tropes are explaining things about God, and I think it's sort of tempting to say like, well, that's what tropes are there to do. Like, why are you talking about tropes without explaining things about God? Um, but sort of in the in the late on in writing the paper, um, and like I said, uh, Caleb Coho was really helpful here, and also. Uh, Paul Aldi, um, uh, Paul in particular, uh, knows way more about metaphysics, uh, than I do. And he uh, pointed out that there are a couple of different versions of trope theory. Like one of them is this explanatory view, but it's not the only one out on offer. And so you've got people like Lowe and, uh, I think he pronounced it Hale. H I always say Hale, but Hale, that sounds right. Yeah. And Hale, Hale and Lowe, Basically, they offer this other view, which you could call this identity view, where tropes are identical to ways that their substances are. So you don't say God is, um, you know, that God is, you don't say God is powerful because of God's omnipotence trope. That would be kind of like saying God is powerful because God is powerful. Like, that's just not a, that's not actually an explanatory statement. God's power just is the trope. So the trope isn't explaining anything about God. The trope just is the thing about God. Yeah. Um, and the worry then is like, why do we have tropes after all? Like, what are we paying them for? You know, yeah. you no philosophical wages without philosophical work. Um, but, but then the answer is just like, whatever other reason you wanted properties. So like, yeah. maybe you want them to explain facts about resemblance. Like, you know, God resembles, uh, you know, Hitler resembles God in power, but doesn't resemble God in his opinions about who should control Europe. Um, you know, maybe, yeah. uh, you want tropes to explain truth making for propositions about God. So like you want to explain the proposition God is powerful is true. Right. Um, or maybe you just, you just want them because you think God's attributes aren't identical, which like, I don't know, maybe that's just like a naive thing that I still sort of like hold on to, but, uh, but they're at least doing that for me. Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder, I wonder uh, if you could use like a muriological like whole priority instead of part priority here to, to do some work. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Oh, you know, that actually reminds me of another like rabbit trail thing. I, I was thinking like, like, what would I want to tell the people who are listening and especially the people who are graduate students and are like struggling through trying to find their way, like in the academic world. I remember when I was writing this thing, I was, I was really scared of being scooped, you know, yeah. like 
I think I have this great idea. It's really, it's plugging a gap in the literature, man. And I just, this would be so great. But, but what if somebody who like, you know, smarter writes some better paper about it before me? Um, and then it happened because Greg Fowler wrote a paper where he talked uh-huh. about the dependence of the parts on the whole and he applied it to disputes about divine simplicity. And I saw that and a part of my soul was just absolutely crushed. Um, but, you know, lo and behold, uh, two different people are going to write two very different papers. And like yeah. his paper has a lot of strengths that mine doesn't, but mine addresses some things that his doesn't. And, and that's fine. So yeah. I just I want all the students in there not to worry as much as I did about that. That's good. Um, I had that happen to me. Uh, I got scooped, but like 10 years prior, uh, it happened. So like, I, not really, I don't think it's actually scooped. I, I've had that happen too. I, I had this great thought in some, some class and I thought, oh, this is a great paper. And then I realized that like, um, was it Marilyn McCord Adams? Somebody had come up with in like the 90s and it was like one, one sentence in her paper. Nice. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, well, okay, never mind. I guess, yeah. I guess everybody knows it now. I, I'd been thinking of this idea. Uh, I'm actually, it got accepted for uh society of Christian philosophers. So I'm going to be presenting Lord willing. That'd be awesome. But I have to change it a little bit, but it, I've been thinking about it forever. And uh, it's an argument for, for God from concept acquisition. And then um, I hear uh, Chad McIntosh talk about it and say, Oh yeah, no, <laughs> Hal Dane's been saying this in this one book. And I was like, no way. So I, I bought the book and looked it up and I was like, dude, this is, this is so sad, but mine's a little tiny bit different, and I think it might be able to That's get That's enough. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I do want to put like a footnote saying like, I've, I've thought of this independently, though it, it is here and him, and he might say it better than me. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, that's what I ended up doing with, with Fowler's paper. <laughs> that's good. Oh, I uh, am still here. I don't know, dude. This always happens. Um, sorry. <clears throat> so uh, let's go uh, on. For audio-only listeners, Parker's uh, video feed just disappeared. Yeah. Um, so, sorry, it's distracting. I'm still here. Um, let's go on with uh, with sovereignty, though. Can sure. We, so, um, yeah. Why would someone think that uh, complexity would diminish God's sovereignty? Yeah. Sometimes when I was writing this paper, I was like, is this two different papers? Like, what's the minimum publishable unit here? Yeah, like because I'm not sure how connected sovereignty and aseity are. Maybe they're just different motivations. Um, but from my recollection, they seem to have been sort of connected for some people, especially like Alvin Plantinga um, and Hugh McCann in his great book on on God and creation, where he argues for simplicity. Um, so the thought here is basically um, we're adding to the world if we say that God is complex. I, what I mean is you know, in addition to God, now we've got all these tropes running around or whatever, right? Like I, I was using tropes as an example. I like, I like these tropes, but uh, you know, whatever it is that we end up putting in God. Um, if you really begin God's power and control over everything, then it seems like we're, we're, we're putting in some things that God doesn't have control over. Yeah. Um, you know, God creates all of physical reality and in some way is sort of in control perhaps of like non-physical reality too. Um, uh, it's kind of controversial, like to what extent you could say that about something like universals or, or numbers or something like that, but some people want to go there. Yeah. Um, but then it seems like God doesn't really control, you know, God's power or God's justice or something. And so the, the thought is it's just theologically bad for that reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, intuitively, it seems kind of weird to think that God 
controls God's power such that, you know, he can't create a square circle because um, he just wouldn't want to. And if you're not grounding right. that, if you're not grounding that want back into his nature. So I would say like God doesn't create a, I, I like saying God can't create a dog too big for him to walk because, well, yeah, he wouldn't want to, but why wouldn't he want to? Well, because that would be, uh, it, it's a pseudo task for him and it'd be, it, it would end up being contradictory um, as, as some philosophers have said. So, yeah, God doesn't want to do stuff that contradicts his nature because he, he, he can't do that anyways. But if you're just saying like, well, God doesn't control um, – the idea that God doesn't control his own power is bad. It's like, well, that doesn't seem that bad to me. It seems like we don't want God to just be able to limit and then strengthen or, you know, his, his own power. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't really get into sort of connections with this and the the, omnip- the omnipotence and like the pseudo-tasks literature in this paper – and actually, now that I hear you talking about it, maybe that would have been the better route to go. Or at least it seems like there's a lot of a lot of good, fruitful like uh, space there to kind of say, like, well, these shouldn't be any more worrisome to you than, you know, God's, you know, quote unquote, inability to make a contradiction true or something like that. Which, right. you know, some people do think that God has that path. You know, Descartes supposedly thought that. Right. Yeah. Um, but most of us are OK with, with putting that outside of God's sovereignty in some sense. Yeah. Um, but the, the kind of response that I make is sort of in the same kind of spirit where I say, uh, look, there are certain senses in which God doesn't have any less control or power than he does if he's simple. Because, like, either way, like, yeah. God doesn't have any control over whether there's a divine omnipotence trope. Like, I presume that the omnipotent simple God in, like, a, a strong divine simplicity model can't just, like, go adding tropes to himself, right? Yeah. Um, but the other kind of aspect of the response is just to say in whatever sense there is less sovereignty, it shouldn't really worry us theologically. Uh, I tend to kind of go in a moral philosophy direction. I'm I'm more of a moral philosopher than like a a guy who knows the sort of stuff that you do about uh, like pseudo tasks and so forth. So I just think like, well, God has these sort of moral constraints, Hmm. you know, there's a sense in which God could act unjustly, but another more important sense in which God couldn't. And that's not problematic for sovereignty. So we can kind of say like, look, if it just turns out to be unfitting or uh, unuseful or something like that for God to go sort of mucking about with his own constituents, then like, that's fine. That's not theologically problematic. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad you went to the moral route. I I usually don't. I like to go abstract and abstruse. Um, But the moral route is even better because we don't want God to be able to mess with his perfections uh whether you're uh neoclassical theist or classical theist like that's we would i think the classical guys would say that's that'd be a, a less of a perfection that wouldn't be a perfection right. if we could change right. that way and so um i i go with omnipotence because i think of like george mavrodes uh or Mav- i say mavrodes but i don't know how to pronounce <laughs> yeah it that yeah I, I don't know any better yeah. So, well, he's got this great, this great, uh, essay on divine omnipotence and he, he goes through and the, the pseudo tasks and such. And, um, it turns out to be, uh, like a great making property or a greater making property that God can't create a stone too big for him to lift because he would be limiting his omnipotence if he were to be able to do that. And so God's actually, um, he's limited by his unlimitedness or something like that. it's, it's this funny. Yeah, he's too strong to do a pseudo task that would be contradictory, um, which I think is awesome. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like, visual people will see my my eyes close and like concentration, trying to follow all of that. <laughs> uh, 
I, I don't know if I actually think that it seems to make God stronger not to be able to do that, but it doesn't seem like it makes God any worse off, any less perfect. Yeah. Well, so if if he if he were to be able to make a dog, uh, Mavrodes does this thing where he he just um, he translates uh, he translates over. So like creating a dog, he doesn't use dog, but I like using dogs. Uh, creating for God to create a dog that's too big for him to to lit, uh, to walk would be the same as saying uh, God, who is capable of walking any dog, creates a dog that he is incapable of walking. And so it's like, well, if you if you translate it over, you see that's like a it's it's contradictory to have right. both of those things. And so if you are focusing in on God's walking ability as the the, the power instead of the creating of the dog, mm, right? Then he's 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 limited he's, by his he's less power. of a walker. Yeah, right. Yeah. So right. So he's got to be the if he's the God who can walk any dog, he's limited in that regard. Saying like, well, then there can't be a dog that he cannot walk. And so he can't be less that if that's the perfection, he can't be less than that. It reminds me of a book from a few years back. And I'm afraid I've forgotten the author. I, I think it was somebody maybe with like a Japanese last name about uh, divine attributes and perfect being theology and uh, some different interpretations of them and basically saying like, um, maybe we have to find what the greatest sort of set of compossible attributes is yeah. and and maybe for some of the attributes it would be in, in some like isolated way possible to have more of that but it would just make the whole less less perfect or something yeah. like that yeah uh, it seems like that's kind of the direction that you're going with there yeah i wonder is that yujin nagasawa that um, would be yeah i'm pretty sure i thought i, thought I just yeah I, that book's in my uh, amazon cart I have not got it yet but <laughs> if he's watching send me that send me a copy of it. i'd love it um okay so so that's good i i think that's a really good place to be um because it's not uh, for for the some divine simplicity proponent. They're saying, "Look, we have an edge over uh, someone who holds to divine complexity." And what you're saying is, "Well, not not necessarily." Like, it seems like we're both on par. Um, saying God has to be a, a certain way. Does that sound right? Yes. So, you know, and that makes me think something that I think is sort of connected to where we've started with how it is that I kind of came to write this paper. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of talked about uh, sort of like wanting to get my theology from the Bible and being like surprised at this, like this philosophical notion. Um, but something that I sort of realized over the past few years is that my, my greatest sort of philosophical passion is finding possibilities that have sort of been dismissed or underexplored mm. uh, things that people would say like, Oh, you can't possibly be a, a reasonably orthodox Christian and say this, you know, I don't want to say like, Oh no, no, hold on. Maybe we've moved too fast. You know, yeah. like, like maybe we don't know as much as we thought. Uh, and so for me, the kind of the joy of this kind of paper is that, you know, the part of the joy of philosophy at how little we really know, you know, and part of the joy of philosophy and honoring God by, by realizing how difficult it is to come to firm conclusions on a lot of questions, yeah. uh, you know, is just sort of saying like, well, actually, I don't know, maybe divine simplicity is true. But actually, it turns out maybe uh, maybe we don't know yet. Yeah, maybe. yeah. Well, well, Matthew, what? Um, that's such an interesting. Uh, I don't know if I call it project, or maybe you called it project. But um, that like impetus to stretch our our concepts on what a, a Orthodox Christian can or cannot say. Where, where does that uh, come from? Like, where where is the the what's the motivation? Where did that motivation come from? 
That's a good question. I'm not sure because it seems like a really deep-seated part of my personality. Mm -hmm. I, I sometimes, uh, you know, if like a student asks about like, you know, they're thinking about like career plans or something. Um, one of the few things that I feel like I say that, that maybe they don't hear from everybody else is that it's not just like following your passions. Like it's not just your love that can tell you which direction to go in. Mm. It can also be the things that you hate. So like maybe if you really hate crime, you should be a cop or something. I don't know. Yeah, that's good. You know, like I, I really get bothered when it seems like people have excluded ideas, uh, you know, or people sort of like too quickly. Yeah. And I think we almost all tend to do it a lot too quickly in a lot of different contexts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I ask because I'm, I'm starting to develop that in myself and I'm, uh, I think it, for me, it kind of happened because of, uh, like Donald Trump. And if like a Trump supporter was talking to me, I'd be like, mm. I'd be like, Trump's awesome. He's, he's the best ever. And be like, well, what about this and this and this? And what about that? And then someone who's like super rabid hates Trump. And they're like, he's sure. literally, literally Hitler. And be like, well, <laughs> you can't say that because that means stuff. And so I just found myself like pushing back. And through that, I developed like, um, Mine might be more just antagonistic than yours. Yours seems to be much like a, a better quality of you, but I like to. Uh, I don't know. You seem like a very non-antagonistic person. Well, I don't know. <laughs> My wife might say different. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I just I, I think uh, part of it is, is studying philosophy and just being like, mm. wow, man, you are this person is making a very strong, universalizing claim, and I don't think that it can be backed up. And so here yeah, you go. I think that says we can find a counter example. Yeah. This. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, good. Um, that's good. Yeah. Man. I think that's a, a good way that philosophy can help to shape us as people. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are moral dangers to it, but I think moral advantages are, you know, it, it broadens your perspective on what's possible. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's really true. That's good. Um, I, I, I'm tempted to stay here the rest of the time, but I want to, I want to talk about um, beauty uh, and, and you develop this simplicity versus beauty argument. I, it's, I think it's actually called an argument from divine beauty against divine simplicity. Does that sound right? Uh, yes, I'm looking at the PDF <laughs> now, and that does indeed sound right. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I have the argument here. I'm going to say it, and then we can talk about it. But um, premise one, God is beautiful. Let, let me jump oh, in before you do, yeah, just because ahead, I, I was just singing the praises of little like – being open-minded and all that kind of stuff. Now you're going to get an argument that divine simplicity is false. So let me just come out ahead of it and say, I'm not totally 100% sure this is right. I just think this is a consideration that we should take, you know, and just sort of like keep this in mind. Here might yeah, be yeah. a cost. Anyway, with that yeah, said. That's good. That's good. <laughs> I like that qualification. Um, okay, so premise one, God is beautiful. Premise two, if God is beautiful, then this beauty arises from some structure. Um, premise three, if God's beauty arises from some structure, then God possesses really differenti differentiated parts. And then, so if these premises are true, then divine simplicity, so characterized is false. And so I don't know, man, you already, you already gave some qualifications there and that's probably from being a, a careful <laughs> philosopher, but if they're, they're true, then this particular notion of divine simplicity is false. So there's still a lot of room to, uh, Someone could say, well, then I hold a different view of simplicity or they're yeah, not true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I try to address, you know, the sort of things that somebody might say in response because like right. I, I do – I am attracted by this argument. I, I sort of – I was thinking as a graduate student like why – what do I dislike about divine simplicity? And sort of to my surprise, I thought, well, God doesn't seem as beautiful. Yeah. Um, 
And it was funny to find myself writing a paper about it because I know very little about aesthetics. Yeah. And then to my surprise, like it's, it's gotten way more downloads than the Asadi paper that we were just talking about, wow. which is weird because Asadi seems way more central to the debate. Uh, I wonder if it's just because there's so little analytic stuff about God's beauty that anybody like Googling it like found this paper and then was probably very disappointed because I don't have very many, like, I don't have great aesthetic insights. Yeah. Uh, I was just awesome. talking about simplicity, but yeah. yeah. But uh, the sense is just, it seems like um, there's something about God that's beautiful and beauty. I think as, as a general, as a general rule seems to arise from some kind of structure in a very loose sense of structure. It doesn't have to be like regimented or like punctilious, like arrangement of things, okay. but it's, it's, it's a, a kind of a, I call them harmony relations in the, uh, the paper. It's a, it's a matter of parts being harmoniously related in some way. Yeah. Um, so, so God is beautiful where, where beauty is the most exalted kind of aesthetic state. It's kind of like, you know, as knowledge is to beliefs, you know, so beauty is sort of aesthetically. Um, and if God is, is, is beautiful and indeed has like, exceedingly great beauty, maybe infinite or perfect, or, you know, something like that. It seems like uh, this beauty is going to have to arise from some kind of structure. And if the structure isn't going to be external to God, which I think it can't be because God can't rely on anything outside of God's self for, uh, you know, for perfections, right? Aseity, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Aseity. And I'm a big fan of aseity. Yeah. And so, and so because of all that, it seems like there has to be some kind of structure in God and, and that structure has to involves some kind of metaphysical complexity. Yeah. Well, um, well, yeah, why, so in defense of, of premise two, if God is beautiful, then this beauty arises from structure. Why I think that this, the structuralism, um, is true. Like I know you argue for it. So well, yeah. Why, yeah. why I think that. Yeah. Well, so the structuralism, let's see, let's see how, like, you know, how I wrote it down in the paper. So, so the thing I'm trying to defend structuralism, if an object is beautiful, it has a kind of unity, proportion, harmony, or some similar relation of various elements of a whole. Mm -hmm. And the thought there is I just tried to reflect on beautiful things. And I don't want to just do like a simple induction, just like notice what beautiful things sort of all have in common, but see, you know, this is kind of like a rationalist project of like a priori insight, but like, see if I could see what it is about them that is making them beautiful. Yeah. And so like, like I said, I don't know much about aesthetics. I'm actually kind of artistically not a very sophisticated person, uh, but I can appreciate like symphonies. Uh, you know, I come from a big music family and uh, complex sort of musical, even simple <laughs> musical pieces. There are arrangements of, you know, sound over time, right? Um, they're not just like one note, <laughs> like even, even some of the, you know, like, like minimalists, I, I love contemporary minimalists sometimes. And like, you know, even Philip Glass is not just actually just playing one note. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and it seems like, you know, visual beauty is kind of the same way. It's uh, it's a matter of, you know, a variety of different sort of colors in a visual field kind of being related to each other in the right kind of way. Yeah. Um, okay. I got a possible counterexample, which you do deal with. Um, there's this, there's this Netflix show, uh, death, life, death, love, death and robots or something like that. And, yeah. uh, are you familiar with it? I've, I've seen it's, a couple it's pretty, episodes, it, it can be, yeah, it's kind of graphic and stuff. So I'm not recommending it, but I have watched it. Uh, there's this one where this robot dude is obsessed with this color blue. Um, does that ring any bells for you? No, I don't think I saw that uh, one. Dang. Well, he's, he the one like the cats. A, yeah. Cat, the cats one's pretty well. Yeah. Um, so he's obsessed with this this blue. He becomes like he's this robot, but he's a really famous uh, painter, and he just 
makes a little blue splotch uh, in his beautiful, beautiful uh, picture. And then as time goes on, it becomes bigger and bigger and he just becomes obsessed with it. And so he thinks like this, this one color of blue is just absolutely beautiful. And so mm. you, you bring up this kind of the same kind of counter example in your paper that just someone might say, hey, what about a beautiful single color patch like the, the robot was obsessed with? Isn't, isn't that beautiful and yet it's simple? Right. So I guess there are a few things to say about that. Um, one thing is I don't think that beauty is the same thing as artistic excellence. Mm-hmm. So like if some artist becomes obsessed, like this is so far away from you, I can't really imagine what it would be like. But, you know, if some great painter becomes obsessed with a color and does art with it, um, people who know about this stuff tell me there are various things you can be trying to do with art. And being beautiful is only one of them. So okay. the fact that it's a great work of art, what he ends up doing with this uh, like, like color blotch doesn't by itself tell us that it's beautiful. Yeah, you can make um, a disgusting, horrible yeah, – any of the postmodern folks, they're still trying yeah, to yeah. tell a message or whatever, even though it's disgusting, horrible. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and, I mean, I don't think that the idea with the, the blue patch is probably supposed to be that it's disgusting. Um, but the other – one of the other things to say, like a second of three here, is uh, I don't think that beauty is just identical to sort of giving pleasure, like when viewed or experienced or something. So, like, okay. if the robot is, like, obsessed with this, like – one thing, one possibility is he's trying to do some weird art thing. Uh, another possibility is he's just, it's just really doing something for him sensationally. Yeah. That, that, that just, turns out to be really, what it really is. He really likes it. Yeah, you got um, it. That, that's exactly what the, sorry, spoilers, but yes, that oh, is, okay. that's the case. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And, and that's not the same thing as being beautiful. Hmm. Um, I mean, I, they definitely seem related. And maybe if you're functioning well, you'll find, really beautiful things to be attractive in that kind of way. But I don't think they're quite the same thing. Sure. But what I end up spending most of the time on in the paper is to just say, um, I think uh, color, color splotches, you know, color uh, bits of color can be um, aesthetically pleasing, aesthetically good, uh, but not beautiful. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I tell people, you know, imagine a color patch, but don't imagine it with any kind of structure, which means it's not going to be a part of some larger whole. It's not like it's going to be, you know, a pink rose, like in some field of roses or something like that. It's just going to be like pink, you know, yeah. just sort of all across the visual field. Um, I think that there's something aesthetically good about that. Uh, I just think that beauty is like the most aesthetically exalted state. Yeah. And, and so it seems to me that that the color patch doesn't get that it doesn't get that far. Yeah, that's good. So uh, I was reminded as I was reading this of uh, Chad McIntosh's dissertation. And I think we covered this. He told me recently he doesn't think we covered it, but I think it's on the podcast. Um, it was a really long podcast episode. I actually haven't gotten yeah, to it yet. I was yeah. looking at it at my feet like two and a half hours. It's wild, man. But but towards the end, I think we did talk about this. And he came up with a similar argument from uh, – it's an axiological <laughs> argument. And uh, it's from um, – Unity and diversity. And so I just I pulled it mm-hmm. out. Um, it's really, really similar to yours as well. Um, he says, premise one, if X is valuable, X is an organic unity, meaning unity in diversity that is characterized by our organisms, but not necessarily only limited to. So then two, God is valuable. Therefore, God is an organic unity. If God is absolutely simple, then God is not an organic unity. Therefore, God is not absolutely simple. And I thought this was really interesting. Um for a Trinitarian to think through. Right. And because, uh, yeah, like I am trying to be a good reform boy and I read uh, Herman uh, Bavink and I read Cornelius Van Til and they are obsessed with this principle of unity and diversity and finding right. that. 
And then I, since I've read that, um, since I've read them, I found it everywhere. You know, the university is a, you know, we live in the universe, yeah. right? And then uh, on our on our coins, e pluribus unum, you know, out of like it's everywhere. Um, and so I thought that was another really interesting one that that tracks really well with your argument about um, about beauty that, you know, structuralism can kind of uh, coincide with this unity and diversity organic motif. And I'm glad that he is kind of thinking along these lines too, because it seems to me that there's been maybe too much of a divide between the sort of like the, uh, sometimes people call them lemmings, the like the non-ethicy, non-value side of philosophy and the sort of value theorists where philosophy of religion has mainly been done sort of in terms of like metaphysics, epistemology, Um, but people haven't been drawing these connections as much to this sort of softer side around like, you know, ethics and aesthetics. Um, But it seems like, you know, especially when we're talking about God from the perspective of like God being perfect or being exalted or or something like that, uh, we've got to sort of, we've got to talk about these evaluative notions and be ready to have arguments about what they mean. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, He was actually encouraged uh, when I sent him your thing too. So uh, it's good. Yeah, that you're both thinking uh, the same way. Um, Look, if you are a uh, austere proponent, proponent of austere simplicity, and you're all triggered right now, uh, it's okay, guys. Like we, we can talk about this, um, but just write the paper. You know, write the paper in axiology, or uh, write a uh, axi- axiology of theism paper, comparing different types of uh, models of God and how one would be more beautiful, and then come talk about it. Let's do it. But you don't have to yeah. get all crazy on online. Um, I'm excited about it, uh, Matthew. Thanks so much for for all your time here, man. This has been really sure. Fun. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'd love to do it again. This has been a really, really fun podcast. Um, uh, before before I let you go here, where can people find some more of your work? Where can they find these papers, uh, for instance? Uh, well, the best way to find the papers is to look me up in philpapers.org. Uh, mm-hmm. Also probably the best place to find most philosophy papers nowadays, I guess. Right. Um, I don't have a, a website anymore. One of the benefits of, of being employed is that I decided not to spend the, the website fee every year. Um, but you can, you can anything that I end up publishing goes on Phil Papers uh, and academia.edu. Uh, and if you're interested uh, in talking to me about any of this stuff, I, I say you know, to the listeners, um, I'm still thinking about divine simplicity and I'm thinking about other divine attributes. And, uh, and I'm happy to sort of like, you know, happy to talk about this with anybody who wants to. Awesome. Man, that's huge. All right. Well, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.